invite you to open up to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. I hope that you have a testimony of how God has changed you. Whenever we think about our, our story, our testimony of God's salvation in our lives, we think about it really in three parts. We think about our life before Jesus, and then we think, not before Jesus came, but before he came into our lives. We, we think about how we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the second part. And the third part is how we have changed since then. It all revolves around Christ and the difference that he has made in our lives. So let me ask you, how is your life different since you believed in Jesus? How has your life been changed? Now, why, why would I ask that? Why would that be a part of our testimony of salvation? Well, it's because that when Jesus saves a person, he changes a person. Can I just say that one more time? When Jesus saves a person, he changes a person. It never happens any other way. There's never a time when Jesus saves a person without changing that person. He transforms our hearts and lives in such a way that our conduct, our behavior changes. And when we live a transformed life, the world does not always like it. We may celebrate that in the church, but the world is not going to celebrate that Outside of the church. In fact, when we live a transformed life, we may, and I would say the Bible says that often we will suffer for it. But I want to tell you something. That's okay. That's okay because it is all a part of God's plan for his people. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. A mission of suffering, the transformed life. If you will, follow along in God's word as we read. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, Orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes and hearts to the truth of your word today? Let it penetrate deep inside of us and then work its way out of us in changed lives for your honor and glory. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. As we study this passage today, we're going to see that we lead others to worship Jesus whenever we view suffering for Jesus as a sign of transformation. When we view suffering as a sign of transformation. Now, we want to always remember where we're at in First Peter. Listen, context is critical. Uh, someone shared with me, uh, I think last week, um, this uh, this little cartoon, and one of the characters said, 
Uh, the older you get, the better you get. And the other character said, not if you are a banana. Context is critical. Context is critical. So we want to make sure we know what, where Peter's at in this letter. Why is he writing this letter? Who is he writing to? And we know from our study that he's writing to the elect exiles. These are Christians and they're suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. And he calls them to live on mission for him. For Christ, for the one they are suffering for. And, and there are two main ways that Peter talks about this life on mission in his letter. One is submission and the second is suffering. We spent several weeks talking about submission and now we're in this suffering section. Specifically, it's suffering for righteousness sake. If you'll look back up at verse 13 of chapter 3, uh, excuse me, verse 14 of chapter 3. He says that even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, that is suffering for living for Jesus. We saw there in that passage, in verses 13 through 17, that suffering is a means of blessing. And then in verses 18 through 22, we saw suffering as the path of exaltation. And today, we want to see suffering as a sign of transformation. I want to share with you four ways elect exiles, that is Christians, that's how Peter called, what Peter calls Christians in this letter, elect exiles, how we must live concerning the transformation that the gospel brings in our lives and then the suffering that will inevitably follow. It's this intersection that Peter's talking about in verses four through six of a transformed life, a life transformed by the gospel and the suffering that comes as a result of our lives being transformed while we live in a world that is opposed to the one who has transformed us. Truth number one is this. Prepare yourself to suffer like Jesus as evidence of your transformation. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. It's a call to action. Prepare yourself to suffer like Jesus as evidence of your transformation. Remember when we talk about transformation, we're talking about the change that the gospel has brought in our lives. Notice verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now the since therefore think, makes us think back to what he has just said. We studied this a couple of weeks ago when we saw that Jesus suffered for us in verse 18. He suffered for our sins, but it resulted in his exaltation. And we said that that would then mean that whoever is in Christ would suffer now, but would one day be exalted like Christ was exalted. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, it's talking about his death. Since he suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. This is a call to action. In fact, this is military terminology. It's a call to arms, so to speak. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter's already called our minds to action. He said, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there, in chapter 1, he was calling us to prepare our minds for living a life of holiness, for living a life of righteousness. Now, in chapter 4, he's calling us to prepare our minds for the suffering that will come when we live lives of holiness. It's that intersection. It's where God has called us to live this way, but the world is living the opposite way, and so we're going to suffer for it. And so we have to be mentally prepared for that. One writer said this, discipline and grit are needed to live the Christian life. If anyone says that following Jesus is easy, I'm just going to be straight 
up with you. They haven't read the Bible. They haven't read Jesus' words to us. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The life of following Christ is a life of suffering in this world. And we need to know that. We don't want to sugarcoat it. We don't want to ignore that. Because if we're not mentally prepared for it, then we'll falter and waver when the suffering comes. But notice here, you say, where do you get this idea of transformation in this passage? Notice the last part of verse 1. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that's an interesting, interesting thing to think about. What, what's Peter talking about? Does he, does he mean that, that by our suffering we're purified? No, no, that's not what he means. We're purified by the blood of Jesus. Does he mean that as Christians we are we are 100% sinless, like in our day-to-day lives, we never sin anymore? No, we know from Scripture that's not true. So what would Peter be talking about? He's talking about the fact that when we are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, it's evident that we have turned our back on sin by the power of the gospel that has transformed our lives. You see, suffering like Jesus reveals a ceasing from sin. We wouldn't be suffering if we hadn't turned from sin. The world wouldn't be persecuting us if we were living like they're living. The fact that they're persecuting these Christians is evidence that they have ceased from sinning. They have turned from sin. They have repented and been rescued from it and are seeking to live for righteousness sake. And that then is evidence that they have been transformed by the gospel. You see, it is the fact that we are no longer under the dominion of sin and therefore are choosing not to sin that leads to suffering for the Christian in this world. And our ceasing from sin is evidence that our lives have been transformed by the hope of the gospel. Listen, which is the greatest thing that could ever happen to us. So we don't run from the suffering. We embrace it. We prepare to suffer by embracing the suffering as evidence of our salvation. In other words, as Christians, we would rather suffer than sin. We would rather suffer than sin because we have been transformed. And that is the greatest news mankind has ever known. And so we cease from sin. That sin leads us to suffering. But that's okay. Because it's evidence that we have been saved by the gospel. Now, Peter is going to zoom in on this ceasing from sin, on this transformed life. You see, this isn't some abstract idea. This transformation is not something that happens in our hearts and minds without ever manifesting itself in outward behavior. This ceasing from sin really is a changed lifestyle right here, right now which is evident to the watching world. It's not something we're just talking about. We're not just throwing out this word transformed and talking about how he transforms our life, and yet it has no impact on how we live on a day-to-day basis. We're talking about daily choices that you and I make as followers of Christ. You must prepare to suffer like Jesus so that you'll be ready each day to live out this transformation in your day-to-day life. Truth number two, align your life with God's will So the world will see your transformation. 
align your life with God's will so that the world will see, so they'll be able to see that you have been changed, that you have been transformed. We're not going to prepare our minds for action and then never act. We're not going to call to arms, call our minds to arms and then and then, and then never go to battle. We're going to prepare so that we can live out that transformation. Notice what he says in verses two and three. He says, preparing your minds, your thinking so as to live for the rest of the time. What's he talking about the rest of the time, the rest of your life here on this earth. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Listen, when it comes to our daily lives, we have two options, Christians and non-Christians. We have two options each day before us. And these two options are it. There's no others. My, my, I think I've told you this before, but but my, my daughter, my four year old, she she likes to give other options. Like when you say, Letty, clean up the living room. And she says, well, let me give you some other options. <laughs> That's what she'll say. That's what she'll say. Well, here's some other options. And, and so our response then is, no, there's no other option than this. You see, there are two options. Generally speaking. We can either live for the passions of the flesh, which is another way of saying sinful fat passion. He's not saying we shouldn't be passionate about things in life, about good things. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the sinful passions of our flesh. You can either live for that or you can live for the will of God. But for Christians, there's really only one option. The option to live for the passions of our flesh, it's gone. Jesus killed that option when he died on the cross. And we died with him and our sins are destroyed. We have one option before us as Christians, and that is to live for the will of God. So as to live for this time and the the rest of this time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then he says this in verse three, for the time that is past suffices or is sufficient or is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying that our lives Uh, The options of living for the world or living for God have been narrowed down and the time is past. Think back to your time before you trusted in Jesus. And Peter is saying that that was enough. That was enough of sinful behavior. That was enough for sinful living. That's not who you are anymore. You have been changed. What does he mean by the Gentiles here? It's interesting that he says living as the Gentiles want to do because he's writing his letter Could be to some Jewish Christians, but very likely, mostly, if not primarily, to Gentile believers. Were they not Gentiles anymore? Not in a spiritual sense. He's using the word Gentiles or or the nations to refer to those who are not a part of God's people. You see, God, through Christ and his love for the world, grafts in to God's people the nations. And so we get to belong to God. He's talked about that in chapter 2. Even the Gentiles are a royal priest, a a, a royal people, a a holy priesthood, a a holy nation, even the Gentiles. And so he's saying, listen, listen, the time, the time before Jesus changed you, that was enough for that kind of living. He gives some examples of that. He says. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions. We can we can put those together and talk about in a general sense, living for human passions and sinful passions. Specifically, those words are often used to refer to sexually immoral behavior. 
And then he uses three words kind of grouped together, drunkenness, orgies and drinking parties. And these three words are words that are used to refer to wild living, a lack of self-control. And then this last word, lawless idolatry, simply a word to refer to unholy and sinful lifestyle. It could have specifically meant idolatry, bowing down to idols for these these uh, uh, Gentiles who previously would have worshipped other gods in their polytheistic culture. But it can refer just generally to any kind of unholy and sinful lifestyle. Listen, this lifestyle he just described in these words, sexual immorality, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, drunkenness, all this. This was this was normal behavior in the society of the elect exile. So notice what he's calling them to do. He is calling them to live abnormally. He's calling them to live different than the world around them. These, these things were, were normal for people to do. And in fact, it was normal in their lives before they were saved. Notice that he says that the time is past. He's saying that they used to live this way, but God in his grace has changed them. He has saved them. He has rescued them from this lifestyle. Of course, a lifestyle full of human passions and desires, sinfulness is not limited to these sins. Christian, were you a gossiper before Jesus changed you? No more. Were you a worrier? No more. Were you looking at pornography before Jesus changed you? No more. Were you lying to your boss before Jesus changed you? No more. Were you cheating on tests or on your taxes? No more. Did you fill your speech with unwholesome talk? No more. Did you fill your body with damaging substances? No more. Did you fill your days with worthless pursuits? No more. Were you exploding in anger at your kids or at your spouse? No more. Were you living in disobedience to your parents before Christ changed you? No more. The time that has passed is enough of that behavior. We are now to live holy, transformed lives. But I want you to remember that this changed way of living is not your attempt or my attempt at changing ourselves. It is our response to the change that God has already made in you. This is super, super, super important for us to not lose sight of. When we get to the part of, of Scripture where we're called to action, we can't forget the part of Scripture where Jesus has acted on our behalf. And Peter's already addressed that in his letter. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that we were born again to a living hope by the mercies of God. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 14, where God called us to live holy lives because He is holy. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, where it speaks about the transformation that God has wrought in our lives, where it says that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Notice right after that in chapter 1, when he tells us how much that ransoming, how much that salvation cost, it was by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And remember your new identity, Christian, that he talked about in chapter 2, specifically in verse 9, when he said that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He said, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our transformed lifestyle is a result of what the work that God has done in us through Jesus Christ. Christian. The time has passed for living like the world. You have been transformed by the saving power of the gospel of Jesus. So live that way for all the world to see. He said that in chapter 2, verse 11, when he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that means as strangers in this world, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's not easy, Christian, to live for righteousness sake, especially when we suffer for it. But because God has changed you, you can and you must. But when we live out our salvation by aligning our lives with God's will, the world is going to notice they will. If they're not noticing, then we're not really living out the gospel in our lives. But when they notice, they're not going to congratulate us. They will abuse us. And that's where he goes in verse four. And that leads us to our third truth. And that is this. As elect exiles, we are to expect verbal abuse from those who don't understand our transformation. Christian, expect verbal abuse from those who don't understand your transformation. Notice verse four. With respect to this. With respect to what? With respect to you not joining them in their sinful lifestyle. They are surprised and they malign you. They are surprised. Why are they surprised? Because they look at you and, you, and they say, wait a second. You, you've always lived this way. Why are you now living this way? Hey, it, it's, it's easier to live the way we're living. Why would you live any other way? It surprises them. It shocks them. Why? Because they don't understand They don't understand why you don't join them, why you're now running in a different direction. Literally, you could say um, where where it says that um, that that they're surprised that you do not join them. They're surprised that you're not running alongside them. That's that's another way to say that we're not running alongside the world anymore. We're running in the opposite direction. The world is running to hell and we're running to heaven. By God's grace. So when the gossip starts in the break room and you walk away. The world is surprised when the filthy talk starts in the locker room and you walk away. The world is surprised when the cheating starts in the classroom and you refuse to participate. The world is surprised when the bullying starts in the lunchroom and you go and sit with the outcast. The world is surprised when you don't congratulate someone for coming out and revealing his or her homosexual behavior. The world is surprised. When you turn down the promotion so you can spend more time at home with your spouse and with your family, the world is surprised. When you tell your kid that he or she is not going to play travel ball because it's going to take your family out of church too much, the world is surprised. When you say that a woman does not have the right to kill her unborn baby, I can guarantee you the world will be surprised. And they're surprised because they don't understand the transforming power of the gospel and how good it is to be 
freed from a lifestyle of sin to live a lifestyle of holiness. And in their surprise, they often abuse. That's what this word um, translated malign, or it might be translated a different way in your copy of God's word. It's to, it's to heap verbal abuse on someone. Now, we know that the verbal abuse sometimes and often does lead to other kinds of abuse and other kinds of persecution. But it seems like from this verse and from other places in First Peter, the main kind of persecution that the Christians were under at this time was verbal abuse, was mockery, was making fun of them. Listen, they might be surprised by our holy behavior, but we shouldn't be surprised by their negative reaction. Because only someone that's been transformed by the hope of the gospel is going to understand why we would live differently than the world. And so how then do we endure and not give in? You know as well as I do that, that it's easy to sit here and talk about living for Jesus. But when we get out in the world and people want to talk bad about us, want to malign us, want to heap abuse on us, want to call us names because we're standing up For Christ and for the word of God, it's not easy to keep standing. It's much easier to capitulate, to compromise our lives to the ways of this world. And so how do we endure and not give in? How do we refrain from retaliating with our own verbal abuse of them? How do we keep our mouths closed and just shower them with love and kindness as they shower us with abuse? We look to the future, Christian. We look to the future, and that's where Peter directs our attention in the last two verses. And we learn this. We look to the future as motivation to endure suffering for your transformation. Truth number four. Look, Christian, look to the future as motivation to endure suffering for your transformation. You're suffering for your transformation in Christ? Look to the future, and you will be able to endure Notice verse 5. He says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The first thing we see about the future is this. In the future, judgment is coming for those who persecute the righteous. In the future, judgment is coming for those who persecute the righteous. He says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who are the they? The ones who are maligning those who are living for Christ, who are living for righteousness sake. Those who are abusing the elect exiles, they will give an account. It's courtroom language. They will stand before the judge one day and have to answer for their lifestyle of sin and their abuse of the people of God. God is ready to judge the living and the dead, and he will do it. Therefore, we can endure without retaliating because we are trusting that God will bring our enemies to justice. We don't have to dole out the punishment. We can trust God to take care of that one day. And that leads us to live in love for those who would abuse us for our faith in Christ. Of course, some, some, we pray, will go ahead and turn to Christ before it's too late. As we continue loving them, they'll see our good behavior. And as Peter's already said in his letter, they will give glory to God on the day of visitation. And so we live on mission, 
hoping and desiring and praying that those who abuse us for our faith in Christ would be convicted and would turn from their sin and would trust in Jesus and become a part of God's people. But even if they don't, we don't have to worry about them. God will take care of them in the future. But secondly, in the future, we look and we see this, that eternal life is coming to those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Judgment is coming for those who persecute the righteous, but eternal life is coming for those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's what he says in a kind of odd way in verse six. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What in the world is Peter talking about when he says this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead? Some would say that this means that Jesus preached the gospel to people who had already dead, who had already died, possibly between his time where he was on the cross and his resurrection. That's not what this verse is saying. We're not talking about preaching the gospel to people who are dead, preaching it to them in their dead state. We're talking about preaching the gospel to people who have now died. So here's what was happening. Most likely the unrighteous, the ones who are doing the abusing, were looking at the Christians and they were saying, why in the world would you endure suffering when you die just like we do? I mean, the same end is coming to both of us. So why don't you just join us in our drinking parties? Why don't you just join us in our sexual immorality? It's much more fun to live that way. And you die just like we do. Look at those people that had trusted in Jesus. Now they're dead. Notice what Peter says. For this is why the gospel is preached to them. Those people who have already died. Because though judged in the flesh the way people are, that means they die just like everyone dies. They might live in the spirit the way God does. And so the Christian response to that is, no, 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 you think they're dead. And yes, their body is dead. But I have news for you. They're alive. Their spirit is alive. They are alive in Christ because Christ has conquered death for us. Even though we die in the flesh, we are alive in the spirit, by the spirit, living forever and ever. I mean, think about the words of Jesus. And Jesus said this, he said, though you die, yet shall you live. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The faith in Jesus, which is evidenced by enduring the suffering that comes as a result, doesn't mean that we will escape physical death. But it does mean that we have been made alive with a life that even death itself cannot snuff out. And so because of that, we have reason to press on. We have reason to endure for righteousness sake, whatever suffering may come to us. We have reason to live a transformed life, no matter what the world says, because the future holds for us life everlasting, life everlasting Christian. And so we look to the future. We endure the verbal abuse today because the day will not last forever and heaven is coming. We choose to live for the will of God rather than human passions because we celebrate our transformation and we want to live for the glory of the one who has given us new life that is eternal. We prepare to suffer as Jesus did as we look forward to that day when we get to see with our own eyes the one 
who bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Jesus has transformed you, Christian. Listen, Christian, Jesus has transformed you. So live a transformed life. Even if it means temporarily suffering for it. This is one of the ways that God has called us to live on mission for him. Would you pray with me? Father. Father, your word is so clear. Your word is so, so clear. There is no room in your kingdom for people who would claim the name of Christ and not live out the way of Christ in their day-to-day life. God, because when you save a person, you change them. You transform them. And you expect us to live out that transformed life, even if we might suffer for it in this life. And God, the truth of the matter is that we will. Father, if we've truly trusted Christ, if we have actually been saved, then our lives will reflect it. It's no other, there's no other option. We won't live for the passions of simple flesh. We will live for the will of you, Father. And yet, Lord, your word also is clear that this side of heaven will mess up. Father, we will still fall short of your glory in our practice, even though in our position we have been made right before you. And Father, even today, it's very likely that, that as Christians we've been convicted of an area of our life where we are not laying aside the passions of the human flesh and living out the transformed life that you have given us. But Father, you tell us in those moments just to run to you. Father, just to look to the cross that we confess our sins. Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Father, in the next few moments, if there be any any evil way in us, any way that doesn't align with your will in our lives as Christians, Father, I pray that we would we would ask for your forgiveness, that we would repent of that, and we would we would cast ourselves once more upon the, the blood of Christ and find freedom and rescue and forgiveness. Father, if there's someone here today who has never trusted Christ. They belong to the world. They can't live differently than the world because they've never been transformed. Father, today I pray that they would believe that Jesus paid the price for their sins. And that by believing in him, they can have new life. And be transformed by the hope of the gospel. Father, have your way in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.